0: You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm talking with Lindsay Scanapico. Lindsay is the founder and managing partner of Scout, an urban design collective that specializes in repurposing vacant spaces. Their claim to fame so far is the Bach Building, a giant eight-story vocational school that takes up an entire city block in South Philly. In this episode, you'll hear how in 2014, while Lindsay was doing work with Scout in London, Bach went up for auction and she saw an opportunity.
1: You know, I saw this website about be schools for sale in Philadelphia. And somebody was like, you know what? Why don't you just do it? Worst case, you'll just learn something from it. You know, you probably won't get it. And I was like, yeah, definitely not.
0: But Lindsay would win the bid for Bach. And as you'll hear, she was a little intimidated. I thought
1: everybody knows something I don't. I'm the youngest person. I'm the only female. I have made a huge mistake.
0: She would get right to work and in only four weeks, she and her team opened up a bar on the roof of the building. It was a smash hit, but it also was controversial.
1: It ended up being so successful and in this age of Instagram, we got girls posing with a bottle of Prosecco on a closed school. That is not a good image.
0: Stay tuned to hear how Lindsay and the Bach team has worked with the community to revive this space, which now features 130 different businesses. All this and more about Lindsay, Scout, and the revitalization of the Bach building, now on Philly Who. I'm your host, Kevin Schmidlin. Stay tuned. Now, though Lindsay founded Scout while living in London, she originally hails from Philadelphia and spent her first few years in the Fairmount area. Her father, Tom Scanapico, is actually a well-known luxury real estate developer in Philadelphia. And though Lindsay reluctantly accepts the title of real estate developer now, entering her father's industry wasn't always her plan.
1: I told him never, ever, ever, <laughs> ever will I ever do that. And he said, I think you'd really like it. And I said, I would I would hate it. You don't you don't know anything about me. And he would try to tell me, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. There's a lot of different parts of it it's it's a huge umbrella that touches so many different parts of of city life and home life and work life and hospitality it can be it can be anything and i did not see it that way i said no nope, i have zero interest in that and so my interest when i was younger was to go into arts business and it's funny because in the end i, I feel like i am working in the arts business and that I work with a lot of creatives I work with a lot of artists and I actually you know believe that in our own way we're we're creative firm and our, our background is more as urban designers which is still what I call myself I'm still not 100% comfortable with the developer term and kind of all the baggage that it brings with it but um, I would say I was a very much a reluctant developer and uh, the way that I kind of got here was that we were doing a lot of projects in London on how you could reuse vacant or underutilized assets. And one of the last projects we did was looking at a a parking garage in a social housing tower. And nobody had cars, so there was no real use of it. And it was starting to attract antisocial behavior. And so we put together an entire plan for how it could actually be a place of skills training, uh, job creation, a way that makers and the residents of that estate could work together uh, to create new opportunities for kind of everybody in that neighborhood. Had a lot of political support. We identified partners. We did community engagement projects. We put together a business plan. We put together physical and interventions for how that space could be improved and in the end it ended up going on a shelf okay. which i think is the story of a lot of grand plans unfortunately and somebody from the community said well why don't you still just do this you did all the work and we said well we, we can't like that's not really something we can do and they said well, why don't you just buy a building and do it as hey, well, a i can't afford to buy a building And B, then I'd have to call my dad and tell him he was right. So I definitely can't do that.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's the number one reason, I think.
1: (laughs) But um, it started to kind of put the idea in my head that we were doing a lot of the work and the process that goes into development. And just because I didn't like the way that development was always being done doesn't mean that I should have, I shouldn't do it. Uh, That that actually might be an opportunity. And I said, well, I I can't afford building. And I... I think I called my dad and said, you know, here's a funny thought or story. And he said, well, maybe you could in Philadelphia. (laughs) And and around that same time, somebody had sent me this link to phlschoolsales.com, which is um, how I, I found out about Bach. And I mean, still even at the time, although it wasn't, you know, an extremely expensive building on a per square cost level, it was still you know, something beyond what I could comprehend. Um, and so that started the adventure of what is now, I I guess now we call ourselves an urban design and development practice, but it wasn't, um, our initial intention or certainly my initial aspiration.
0: So let's back up. What brought you to London in the first place?
1: So I went out there for grad school. So I did a master's degree in city design and social science at the London school of economics. And Uh, My focus there was on an area adjacent to the London Olympic site called Hackney Wick and looking at a neighborhood that at the time was considered to have one of the largest concentrations of artists in all of Europe, but most of it was very informal. It was in a lot of squats and kind of vacant warehouses. Um, It was a community that was pretty spatially divided, um, it had some real physical barriers, had a, a river, the River Lee, um, a train line running through it, for example, and thinking about how you could actually stitch that community, different pieces of that community together, but also stitch it then into the this Olympic site that was seeing all this kind of investment and change, and it was quite a striking change from what it was historically, and thinking about how that could maybe be done in a way that provided um, opportunity for those kind of existing residents.
0: So your claim to fame so far in London is about refrigerators. <laughs> That's right. Correct?
1: <laughs> yeah. So while we were doing work in Hackney Wick, one of the things that would always come up as we were talking to residents was that they would talk about the fact that the, on the Olympic park where at that time the Zaha Deed aquatic stadium was being built, which is one of the kind of most grand architectural expressions i would say of the olympic project it's a stunning building Um, that, on that exact site actually used to be something affectionately known as the fridge mountain which was a fridge depot that basically there was a lapse in recycling policy in europe and so what happened is that all these fridges started to pile up and people would talk about the fridge mountain kind of quite romantically, because I think it was just such a contrasting symbol to this kind of new shiny, stark attack aquatic stadium being built. And it was it was just such a visual contrast and kind of a reminder of the change um, that that community had seen. And so when we talked to people about it, they said, oh, did you ever hear about the Fridge Mountain? And almost, it, it was almost something of folklore in the neighborhood. And we said, you know, not a lot of people are gonna know about that story when they come for the Olympics. They're gonna just see the new sexy Zaha Hadid Stadium. And so we came up with a kind of very short project, it just was two weeks, where we built a cinema called Films on Fridges, out of fridges, <laughs> uh, in a attempt to resurrect at least the ethos of the Fridge Mountain. And the idea was that we would play sports films on it over the exact same dates as the Olympics, just one year earlier. And so the idea was that people were excited about what was to come, but they would also maybe also understand what was there originally. And so we opened this cinema films on fridges and we showed everything from Rocky to pumping iron to, uh, we did the world premiere of a soccer documentary called Palada. Really wide range of films. And it sold out. And shockingly to us became, you know, I think Time Out called it the hottest cinema in London that summer. And uh, from there, we got an email from a large arts institution asking uh, if we only worked in fridges. And we said no, <laughs> and that was kind of the start of our of scout. That was the start of us as as kind of a company, although you know, with kind of little aspiration. I think at that point to um, of where it would take us or how it would evolve. The idea was really that we wanted to try to do something, and we were really interested in the history of a site and understanding. Um, and looking at kind of creatively how to both educate and entertain and um, showcase different narratives of space.
0: The day that it sells out you see that people are into it and you're gonna have a full house every night. What goes through your mind?
1: I still describe it as one of the most exhilarating feelings in the entire world and you only get those feelings once or twice in a project, but they're the things that you kind of continue. It's that adrenaline that I think becomes addictive. And when we first opened the bar the first summer, Finn here, I it was that same feeling. Um, but that first time is a time that you'll never. I, I we just I remember us just absolutely just jumping up and down we actually our our kind of office was in a container but not one of these like sexy containers with windows and all that it was actually like a legitimate container that we just locked everything into at night and I remember just going into it and us closing the door and just like screaming for just a second in kind of excitement um and then kind of going out and you know trying to pull it together and stay professional and seem like this was uh, everything that you thought it would be. Right.
0: We knew this all along.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So, um, but you know, it wasn't without its challenges. We got rained out, which was always, it's always a challenge in anything outdoors. Um, we had, because we had more people show up, we didn't initially have enough, um, bathrooms, uh, that, that was a fun challenge. So, you know, things that you wouldn't anticipate, good problems. Good but... <laughs> problems to have, exactly,
0: exactly. So, your dad suggested buying a space.
1: Well, somebody in London, actually, a member of the community that we were working with suggested it, and I kind of said, well, that's, that's kind of a crazy idea, I don't really think we could do that. And, uh, you know, I saw this website about these schools for sale in Philadelphia, and I'm obviously from Philadelphia, and so there was some there was definitely, obviously, strong personal ties here. And I called a couple people in Philadelphia and said, you know, I'm thinking about submitting for this. And they were like, that's totally bonkers. And I was like, I know. And somebody was like, you know what? Why don't you just do it? Worst case, we'll just learn something from it. You know, you probably won't get it. And I was like, yeah, definitely not. So that seems like a good idea. We'll just we'll just do it as an experience. And so we submitted um, a bid through this Website phlschoolsales.com. It was like on a two page application. We filled it out.
0: Did you specifically choose on the website this building? Yes. Okay.
1: Yes. Um, so my family is from South Philadelphia. My, my dad's cousin had come to Bach. I knew of Bach. Um, the scale and architecture of this building was really fascinating just from the beginning. But I think at a more important level was the idea that a lot of our work had been working with kind of makers and artists and non-traditional work users. And we knew this was a vocational school. And so I said, you know, even if everything has been stripped from the building, there's got to be some assets that remain. So whether that's a concrete floor or a sink, or the fact that a room might just have a lot of electrical capacity, those are things that are actually so valuable and they're really expensive and hard to bring into a new building. And if you did, then those types of users could never afford to use them. And so that was kind of the basis was actually let's just use the building in how it was intended to be used or use the spaces in ways that they were intended to be used and, and kind of respond to that space. The idea again, of kind of going back, I think, to that other project I mentioned of kind of looking at things that are usually a challenge, but saying, how can you actually see that as an opportunity? And so We have great examples of that today. We have a woodworker, for example, in the old wood shop. We have a catering company in the old culinary arts kitchen. Um, We have a wholesale bakery, which is affectionately called Machine Shop Boulangerie, uh, because they are in the old machine shop, because that had enough power for their equipment, and it had concrete floors, which was really practical for a wholesale bakery and really easy to kind of wipe down and clean. So those are just kind of some examples. And that was our, that was always our approach. That was our proposal, but, but we submitted and, um, kind of embarrassingly, I have to admit that we, we missed the tour date.
0: Oh my gosh. So you hadn't seen the interior of the building?
1: No, (laughs) I, um, I had kind of seen the information they had supplied as a part of this, this website, but it was pretty surface level and i kind of thought well if we get further down the process we'll kind of better understand it i mean the chances of this going anywhere are so slim anyway let's just let's just kind of you know submit and see where it goes and so then we found out that we got shortlisted and they called me and said you know do you want to revise your price i said okay well is it high is it low how many other people were shortlisted and they said oh i can't tell you any of that i said okay well how many people submitted they said we can't tell you that Okay, well, I think I'm just gonna hold because I don't really know what else to do. <laughs> and, um, so, and I I now have learned that I believe there was eight or nine submissions, and I believe the shortlist was about half of that. Okay. Um, and then I found out that we had been selected, and I I couldn't believe that. And then I found out that we were the highest bidder. And I said, oh, shit.
0: Yeah. What goes through (laughs) your mind at that moment?
1: Well, I thought everybody knows something I don't. I'm the youngest person. I'm the only female. I have made a huge mistake. And so I, on our first kind of tour through the building, I assembled this army of older, experienced men. Yeah, (laughs) And it was, you know, we had somebody from historic preservation work. We had somebody that did MEP, you know, mechanical electrical plumbing. We, a structural engineer, architects, uh, developers who had done reuse and renovations of kind of historic properties before. It was maybe 30 of us. And I brought a photographer that I emailed and he said he could come over his lunch break. Yeah. Um, and that is, that was Conrad Benner,
0: Ah. streets department.
1: (laughs) And so, uh, he was the, the only other person my age and we started off by coming in and we said, you know, we have no idea what we're going to find. And I said, I have no idea. You know, I'm always happy to admit when I don't know something. And I said, so please raise your hand, point things out, look at things, tell me the problems. Like this is the day that. All red flags need to be raised, and we walked through the building, and over that tour, nothing, at least at that point had come out as totally scareworthy. And I remember Conrad and I came up to the eighth floor of the building, and it was just us. I don't know, everybody was looking at maybe a roof or, or something else, I'm not exactly sure. and I just we just looked at each other and we just said. Oh my god. This is insane. <laughs> and it's funny because since then, at the time he was working at a job, like I said he came over on his lunch break, uh, you know, we didn't know each other very well and obviously now he's just such a leader in the the Philadelphia photography community and creative community and um has kind of jumped to great fame. Yeah. And so yeah. it's funny to kind of look back and, and think of the journey that we've all been on, um, over that period of time.
0: So you take the tour with all these folks, you, at this point is the building yours.
1: So, so we're in a period of due diligence. So we're kind of exploring, we're looking for that big skeleton that scared everybody else off. That's what I'm looking for. I'm I'm looking for the big problem. That's going to make me say, Oh my gosh, this makes no sense.
0: And did you find it?
1: No, for better or for worse. We still haven't found that. Um, We found lots of problems, but none big enough to actually run out of the room. (laughs) Yeah, Well,
0: maybe other people didn't have the confidence that you had that they weren't big enough to run out of the room.
1: Yeah, I think, I actually think the reality is that the scale of the building scared a lot of people. Um, It's a huge building. It's 340,000 square feet. It occupies an entire city block. It's nine stories high. I think people had a hard time with that scale. I also think that, and unfortunately, the reality is that a lot of schools, when they close, either sit empty and then get demolished, they become charter schools or they become market-rate residential. That's kind of the, those are the kind of traditional paths. And my understanding, and I've never actually been formally told, was that the other proposals were for market-rate residential. And so in order to kind of core through this building and install all new bathrooms and all new kitchens and systems, it would have been so expensive that that's probably the reason they bid low. Um, But we were actually looking at not kind of picking and poking and prodding and changing the building. We were looking at how can we use it just the way it is. How can we
0: fit what the building wants rather than make the building fit what we want?
1: Exactly. Amazing. So... Uh, it's, it hasn't been without its challenges, but, um, I think that's the real reason that people didn't, uh, didn't go for it. Yeah.
0: So. so the purchase goes through. Yep. Did I hear correctly that within four weeks of you having the building, Bach Bar opened?
1: That's right. So basically, uh, we came up with this idea. So in the beginning, I couldn't get a bank to give me financing.
0: Right. That's another question I have for you. How the heck did you come up with a million and a half?
1: (laughs) So I was talking to banks about this idea of what we wanted to build here. And they said, okay, what are the market comps? What are examples? How do you know there's demand for that type of space? There was no examples that I could point to, especially in this neighborhood. Um, And they said, you know, we just... Don't know if anybody will ever come there. You're you're in a residential neighborhood. Yep, you're close to Center City. Yeah, you're six blocks from East Pass Young Avenue. Yes, you're a couple miles from the Navy Yard, but you're near everything and next to nothing. And uh, so for that reason, we really wanted to do something that could kind of prove to a bank that, that we could that we were somewhere that people would want to come. The other issue um, or challenge for us was that a lot of developers sit on projects for years. They get everything together, they get all their plans, they get all their funding, they get um, they they kind of assemble and consider and test and strategize and we kind of said we actually want to prove to people that we can get something done. Um, As a young female I think not many people thought that we could and so there was also something about saying let's show people that we can and know how to get things done in the city of Philadelphia. Um, And then the third and kind of most important thing for us was that we asked ourselves, what's the best way to talk to the neighborhood? And we said, well, how do you talk to your actual neighbors at your wherever you live? And I said, the way I talk to my neighbors is I sit outside on the stoop and I have a drink. That's how we talk to our neighbors. And the amount of neighbors that can come to a 7 PM meeting on a Wednesday night or choose to, or take the initiative to, are a very small segment of this neighborhood in this city. And that the best way to talk to people would be to invite them up for a drink. And invite them up to a drink in a really special space so that they could see what we see, and they could understand why we're excited. So that was the premise. That was the entire premise. There was nothing more grandiose than that. I talked to a lot of bar operators in the city about, running that space with me and all of them thought I was totally crazy. Um, I had, you know, people asking me what our marketing and PR strategy was. We said we didn't have any money for that. They said, how, who's ever going to come? Um, my, my dad told me to build two walls so that if I invited 20 friends, it would feel busy.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh.
1: He said, who's going to come? Nobody's ever going to know about this. This is, this is crazy. And so we built that ourselves that first year, my team and I, we sanded and painted and hammered and physically built that the first year. Yeah. Um, cause we didn't really have any money to do it. Well, most of our budget actually got wiped out on plumbing, which turns out is, um, an extremely, uh, expensive and unsexy piece, but ends up taking a lot of a lot of your budget. And so um, to get the toilets working up there was a monumental task. And so everything else kind of just had to work around whatever the was
0: toilets. left. <laughs> um, <laughs> it around the toilets. we had
1: working toilets, that was kind of the key. And so we opened that bar f- that first year for 22 nights. And over the 22 nights, we had over 30,000 people come through the door. And I was able to close on our construction loan. Um, and so I invited... Anybody that was thinking about getting involved in the project in any capacity up to the bar. And when they saw it full of people, they said, wow, there's something's going to happen here. And then the other piece of it was that, you know, turns out bars actually are a pretty good business. And so then I also had an anchor tenant. And so now that's an established um, operator, but it's a it's an anchor tenant that pays uh, great rent for the building. I call it the icing on the cake. Um, it kind of allows the the rest of the the mix to work, yeah. and so um, it's now in its fourth year. But for us, it was also an example of kind of minimum viable product, and that's something I know it gets talked a lot about a lot about in the tech world. And I think in the real estate world, for a lot of reasons, it's pretty unflexible and unable to kind of uh, be something that's a place of experimentation and testing. Right. But for us, it was actually really important that we were able to um, kind of empty out our small kitty and say, let's just test this and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, then let's go back to the drawing board. But we had very little to use. And for better and for worse, it totally exceeded our expectations. We thought that people would come, but we had no idea of the power of a sunset in the Instagram age, which is a beautiful and terrifying thing. Um, and now we do probably around 2000 people through a night.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's I, just personally, that's one of the, when I have people visit town, it's one of the destinations that I bring them to. Cause it, I just said like, if you want to see the skyline, you need to come here. When the bankers were telling you that, you know, you're near everything and next to nothing, did you even think that this could be the thing that people would want to be next to?
1: Yes, I think we thought it's a beautiful building. We knew that, I knew that there was some incredible creatives in this city with great businesses and um, making great products and that especially in this neighborhood people were living in two story small row houses we didn't have big generous spaces that you know north philadelphia yes there's a lot of warehouses but that's not south philly that's not the typology of this neighborhood and so saying that people would be able to use the space and I I didn't know exactly how I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody say oh can you pull up a plan and write on it exactly what's going to go in what space and I've never been able to do that and I never will be able to do that because a lot of times and this is something that a practitioner that I really like Theaster Gates uh, said that's kind of stuck with me is to take the master out of master plan I don't know what's best in a space. I know that if you offer somebody a space and you provide, you know, the practical essentials and you provide transparent pricing and you provide just a usable space, people will think of how to use that. And I think one of my, my favorite examples of that is actually the hairdressing salon here at Bach, Fringe. Um, and Erin, the owner of Fringe, is fantastic. And when she first came to me and said, you know, I, I want to come to Bach and I'm, I'm okay on an upper floor, I said... Really? How's that going to work for your business? And she said, Lindsay, people don't come to a hair salon because they pass it on the street. They come to a hair salon because they see somebody and they say, I love your hair. Where did you get it done? She said, I haven't had a a walk-in customer in eight years. And I said, oh my god, you're right. But that's an example where I never would have said, oh, let's put a hair salon on the fifth floor. But I had to say, you're right. That makes sense. That's great. Let me know how we can make that happen. And that's an example of somebody who was on East Pass Avenue. They were on the commercial corridor and they were able to grow, expand and stay in this neighborhood. And, you know, I think that's a really great example of not kind of always knowing what something is going to be, but say, I want the space to have this intention or this kind of diversity of use, which is really important.
0: So there was a lot of negative press around the repurposing of this building for various reasons. Um, Did you expect that to be the case when getting into this venture?
1: I think that I didn't anticipate how successful the bar was gonna be that first year. And so I have come over time to really understand where that perspective came from. I think school closures are a terrible thing. Schools are not only usually located centrally in our neighborhoods, but the architecture of a school is something of civic pride, civic gathering. It is so hard for a community when a school closes. And I think a lot of people were very upset about the school closures here, as they should be. But I think the reality is that that isn't a Philadelphia problem. In Philadelphia, we closed 32 schools. In Chicago, it was over 60. In Detroit, it was over 110. This is an issue that a lot of cities are facing. Um, And I think that a lot of the anger and a frustration that we heard was about school closures and I understand that anger and I agree with it and I hope that we don't have to close schools again. Um, However, this school, there was a decision at the school district's level to sell this school and I was not in Philadelphia at the time that that decision was made and there was a lot of things that could have happened to this building. We also picked a reuse that was probably more public-facing than any of those other options that we talked about if it's a charter school you most people don't always go into it if you don't have a kid who's attending that school if it's housing that only hits a specific segment of that population and so we picked a very public use and so also we were um we were more public facing and so that was also going to impact the perception of the of the space and the project the other thing is that the first thing that we did was open a bar and you know i kind of thought of that as oh, that'll be a a good way to show people what's possible. It ended up being so successful. And in this age of Instagram, we got girls posing with a bottle of Prosecco on a closed school. That is not a good image. (laughs) I hadn't fathomed that image because it was so hard for me to even fathom that, that could and would work, that I hadn't really thought about what that would look like if you stepped away. And so I understand that frustration. I don't disagree with where it came from. I think and what I hope is that over time we've shown, and we're still trying to continue to show, that this building is much more than a bar. The bar is under 5% of the building's footage. We have over 130 businesses here. Of those businesses, 85% of our businesses are run by people who live in South Philly, residents of South Philadelphia. And there is a wide diversity of users. Everything from a boxing gym to glass blowers, a tattoo parlor, a daycare, ESL classes, a Cambodian nonprofit, a carpentry workshop, a textile designer, um, a tattoo studio, paint-based artists, ceramic-based artists, screen printers, and so that this is actually a space that has a lot of different types of activity in it—not just the bar. But in the beginning, it was just the bar. And so I now understand and see, I think, a lot of the kind of visceral response that we got in the beginning. And I understand that. But we really want this place, this building, to be a place that is has a diversity of use, that has lots of different types of people coming into this building at lots of different times of day. Um, and the bar you know, is a part of that, but it's not all of that. And I, I hope that over time we're able to continually prove that as this building grows.
0: Has the community's attitude softened in the years that the building has started to fulfill that prophecy of being something that's diverse and, and for the public?
1: So our neighborhood never was the one that was critical. Oh, interesting. Um, our neighbors and our community and our alumni have always been supportive. Uh, people, it was people outside of this neighborhood, uh, people in West Philly and North Philly, um, I remember there was a day that somebody was here handing out flyers about uh, there were some protesters outside and we had an alumni coming up to have a drink. (laughs) And the guy handed him this piece of paper and said, Hey, do you want to learn about this school? And the alumni said, what do you know about this school? And the guy said, Oh, I know they closed it in you know, 2013. And the guy said, yep. And I went to school here and I'm going to go upstairs and have a drink because I, know that, the, you know, that this building was being disinvested in, had, you know, deferred maintenance and, def- you know, decreasing enrollment, had a lot of challenges. And, you um, know, you know I support this, this, you know, having it be reused. And if I come outside and you're still here, and I think he used some words that I won't repeat. Um, but the reality is that those are things that I couldn't have said, and it would have made a difference if I said them. And I think that's what's important to kind of for us to remember is that. Actually, this local neighborhood and the alumni, who are my most important stakeholders, have always been supportive. Um, It was people from outside the community that we heard a lot of uh, the negative uh, feedback from initially. And um, But, you know, whenever you do kind of a big project, you're going to have critics. And that's part of the challenge. And it's been certainly part of my experience of kind of aging and maturing in business. Right.
0: So, would you say that you're or you have a better toolkit for handling like when a press article hits your desk that's not very favorable?
1: Sometimes I'm working on it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I um, I think it's both a terrible and beautiful thing to develop thick skin. I think that I and this building and this project always will, to some degree, be fragile. Um, and I think it's actually important for spaces to be powerful but fragile at the same time. I think that you know there's always something to learn from feedback uh even if you don't like to hear it and there's definitely times where i go you know cry in a corner and that's okay um you're not gonna make everybody like you
0: you mentioned earlier how you had that moment of joy with the success of the fridge project and that you also had it with the success of the bar where were you when that moment happened
1: well i remember for our opening we were trying to get a sign installed, and I was. I had a hammer in my hand, and I was drenched in sweat. It was so hot. I think I still had somebody working on these darn toilets.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I think
1: the plumbers were still there. I think the health department had like just left, given us permission within 30 seconds of opening, like literally. And I was running around and trying to kind of do the dog and pony in the midst of it. Somebody said, Lindsay, you've got to, you've you know, you got to get changed. You've got to, like, clean yourself up. You look terrible. (laughs) (laughs) And so I came downstairs to one of the bathrooms, and I I stuck my head in the sink, um, put some makeup on, put a dress on, and went upstairs. And there was people there that I didn't know. And there's still nights where sometimes I'll come here, whether it's to the bar or to see an installation or an event or even just a party in a tenant space. And I just pinch myself because it's, it is kind of better than I think I imagined. And it's just great to hear and see people enjoying the space, growing their businesses, um, creating amazing things that are way beyond my abilities. And I think just, you know, being a part of enabling that is is fun. I, I say that one of my favorite things to do is actually ride up and down the elevator and just listen to what people say on their way in and out of the bar and the building. Um, I really sometimes wish I could just be a fly on the wall. Yeah. So.
0: So now you're four years in, you have how many tenants total?
1: So we have 130 businesses here today. Wow.
0: So. Um, would, how close to at capacity would you say the building is?
1: So we're at
0: 50%. Oh my gosh, only half. <laughs>
1: so. <laughs> It's um, it's a big building, turns out, and I sometimes joke that it's even bigger than I thought because I think of how far we've come and how much work we've done and the fact that there is still another 50% to go is sometimes overwhelming. But um, that's the amazing and terrifying thing is that it is such a big building and that, that scale also enables really amazing and interesting things to happen, but uh, I can't wait to see how it grows in the next couple of years. Yeah,
0: are you intending for 100%?
1: Yeah. Me yeah. and the banks. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
0: definitely. Oh, I'm totally going to get there. <laughs> so, so that's what you'll be driving for over the next few years. That's right. Amazing. And then so, what then?
1: Oh, God knows. I'll probably uh, just take a little bit of time off. No, I, I have no idea. I, I really, I don't know. I think one of the interesting things that has emerged over the last year or two has been a conversation that's even beyond a national scale about school reuse Um, The architecture of schools is really specific. So there's one heating system. It's either on or off. There's no kind of ability to shut off one area or one floor or one room. Um, There's these kind of big gang bathrooms So you have the kind of large girls room and the large boys room. Um, and you have these hallways that were made so that when a bell rang, the entire building could empty out into the hallways all at one time. So you have an extreme loss factor and inefficiency from the hallways. And in addition to a lot of other kind of principles and the fact that, you know, schools are built inherently, so you're not able to see what's happening inside of them. We're not supposed to be able to see kids, right? But then when we talk about how they get reused, how do you bring back transparency into a building that physically was built to have zero. (laughs) Um, And so those sorts of conversations and questions are not box specific challenges. They're, they're universal challenges. And so, you know, I was talking to somebody in Memphis about a school that they're reusing. Detroit has um, a a school that they're working to kind of make creative workspace. I visited one last fall in Melbourne. um, We're actually, that's, that's a really interesting project because it's actually the opposite where their their real estate market there is is so strong and it's such an expensive city that the government has actually purchased an old vocational school to preserve it as affordable artist space. Um, but somewhere even like Japan, which has an aging population, they're having the same challenge with how do you reuse a school? And all of the schools are built in that same way in that same kind of that physical language is the same. And so that's something we're really interested in whether or not that's by buying another school or actually just sharing our war stories. I'm not exactly sure, but I think there's, um, there's been a really interesting conversation much larger than this building, uh, that that's been starting to happen.
0: So in discussing the story of Bach so far, and even going back to London, you often say, we, who's we,
1: Yeah. So we have a fantastic team here at Bach. We're a team of uh, a lean and mean team of nine on our staff, um, majority women. And it's an interdisciplinary practice. So we have people who do have urban design backgrounds, people who don't have urban design backgrounds. And it is not at all, you know, an exaggeration to say that I could not do this without them. They are absolutely critical to the project. But and, and so, so, so valuable. And I think surrounding yourself by good people is one of the best things that you can do. But I think one of the interesting things is unintentionally it has, it is majority women. And we talk about oftentimes why or how that's happened because it's kind of strange in an industry that is very male dominated. And one of the things that we go back to is that a lot of our work is about intuition and sometimes intuition is just as good as a kind of grand plan. And a lot of our businesses are just starting out. And so you don't fully know who will succeed and don't, won't succeed. And so we've actually, you know, we talk to people and understand who they are and what motivates them and what, what do they want to do and how do they want to grow. And that's a really big part of our leasing process. Um, We've also found that working with people who maybe don't have a big lease knowledge is helpful because we don't have that either. So when somebody says, I have no idea about this section, we can say, oh, yeah, actually, I didn't understand that either. Let me help you through it. And actually that that is much easier for somebody to understand and to work with. And so um, I think that's been really helpful. And I think the other thing that we always talk about is that real estate is actually just an industry of people and problems and that's what I spend most of my day solving, I, either with people and or or problems. And so, and I I do believe that um, women are very good at that. And uh, it's been just incredible to to be able to find and grow such a wonderful team that is able to respond and listen and react. But it's it's not without its challenges. We've definitely. Had times where somebody still speaks to the men in the room, yeah. and um, but I'm really feel quite honored to be around strong women who, uh, at least we can joke about it afterwards or, or comment on it when it does happen, and and kind of um, appreciate I think the uniqueness of of our team's composition and the opportunity that we have. Forty-eight percent of our businesses here are actually women businesses. Which is huge, um, and so the city of Philadelphia. The average, I think, is thirteen percent, twelve percent. Is pretty low, and so the fact that we have so many strong businesses here, I also think, is a reflection of kind of the strong women leadership yeah, here. Yeah,
0: for sure. So I have a few questions that I ask all of my guests, okay. just, just to get different perspectives. Uh, if you could send a message to your past self at any point in time, other than just like words of encouragement, would you? And if so, what would you say?
1: You don't know anything. <laughs> um, no, I just think that, you know, there are so many times in your life where you think, oh, I don't want to do that, or I'm not going to do that, or that's not for me, or I'll never, you know, move here, or do this, or be like that. And the reality is you just don't know. You know, life is an adventure. And I, I oftentimes when we're talking, you know, I talk to interns or new hires coming into the company, they say, oh, I just, you know, I just don't know what to do or I'll never do something like that. And I just say, you just don't know. Like, I don't really know where I'm going to be 20 years from now. I had a a funder actually recently asking where I saw myself in 20 years. And I said, oh, in my 50s? I'm sorry, I I can't see that far ahead. But I actually think, um, for me at least, that's been a healthy process because I think there's been times where I've wanted to and I think our society kind of asks us to be able to, confidently see things. And I have had to learn to let go of that and actually confidently admit that I cannot see things. And sometimes there's just as much value in that. And so I think um, for me, it's about letting go of preconceptions of what I thought or thought at one point in my life.
0: So from your perspective, you know, in the, in the world of you know, art and real estate and the confluence of these things. What's the most encouraging thing you see about Philadelphia?
1: So I guess a couple things come to mind. One is that a lot of young people here feel like they can make a difference. And I think that's an amazing thing. I think so often in big cities, you don't feel that you can have an impact. And I think people here feel that they can. And I think that is incredible. And also, especially in today's kind of climate, really important to, to feel that you can have an impact and, and do something that you wanna do. And, and 40% of the businesses here at Bach, I say graduated, but basically started in their living room and this is their first place of work. And so, we, so I work every day with people who have kind of taken the initiative to say, I'm gonna take this hobby and turn it into a career. And they're in the very early days of that. But I even think that saying that to themselves or signing that first lease is such a big step and I'm just so happy to be in a city where a lot of people feel comfortable and able to take that step. Because somewhere like New York or London, you you can't do that. The stakes are high, the money requirements are you know big. And so I think that that is exciting. I think um, Philadelphia is also this kind of big small city which is a, you know, You can see kind of both sides of the coin, but also means that you get to know other people in the city doing other types of projects that you can collaborate, commiserate, um, support, advise. And I found that network to also be really
0: helpful. On the flip side, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing Philadelphia today?
1: You know, I think obviously there's a big question about the influx of the younger generation, whether or not they will stay and Our schools being able to be a place that people want and choose to send their children to? I think that's obviously a big question and challenge for Philadelphia. Um, I do think that for so long, the city has not had any external pressures on it, which is a good thing, but also means that sometimes we've gotten a bit stuck in our ways. And uh one of the examples of that I think would be parking.
0: Yeah. yeah. And especially
1: here in South Philadelphia. Um, we call it the secret P word because you're not allowed to say it out loud. Right. Um, <laughs> but you know, a lot of people have a perception, and even you know, now that oh, that won't work because there there isn't parking, but there's plenty of other cities that people live in uh with less parking than we do. I, I believe we actually have one of the, the cheapest uh car ownership rates in the US. And so thinking about how we support and adapt change, uh, well, not kind of excluding people who have been here for a long time and have very strong preconceptions of what it means to live here in Philadelphia.
0: Cool. If you could send a message that would be received by every single Philadelphian, what would you say?
1: So they had this saying at Bach, which was come to Bach and be okay. And we sometimes say in our office, be okay. And I think there's a sense that everything has to be fantastic and great and be a home run, but you can just be okay. And I think there's something comforting about, about that. This kind of idea that you always keep it moving, that you kind of consistently keep trying and keep learning and keep listening and that for any business or idea or relationship, it takes work and it takes responsiveness and it takes listening and learning and growing and pushing and that's, that's okay.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Lindsay, Scout, and the Bach journey, you can head over to podphillywho.com forward slash Bach. That's B-O-K. If you liked this show, be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, give us a rating. You can also reach out and follow along on Twitter and Facebook at podphillywho. Music by Lee Rosevere podcast art by Lauren Carhart. Special thanks to Alex Feldman and a very special thanks to Lindsay for being on the show today. For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. See you next week.